Today on The Black Goat, we discuss two sociologists' argument that in response to the replication crisis, psychologists are looking for objectivity in statistics and systems rather than individual scientists, and a letter about bringing up new concerns during the second round of reviewing. Hi, everybody, and welcome to The Black Goat. My name is Sanjay Srivastava. I'm here with Alexa Tullet and Samin Vizier. And Samin, Australia is famous in America, or sort of its reputation is like weird stuff grows there. And I think we've talked about the weird animals, weird to Americans, of course, is all culturally relative, like the, the gigantic spiders and all the poisonous stuff in the ocean. But uh, what... Does the, does the, do the fruits and vegetables also kill you there? Or like, what's the deal with, uh, uh, with the plant life? Yeah, it's fun going grocery shopping because there's all kinds of new things to try of, in every section. Um, so I recently did a taste test of different apples. And I don't know how much of this is like regional versus I just never uh, explored all the varieties of apples. But I tried all the greenish red ones, like the ones that are kind of in between that I could find because I generally like those. And I found some really delicious ones. Kanzi is my favorite, I think, and Jazz. I like a lot too, um, compared to like Pink Lady or Fuji, which are the ones I'm more used to. Those were way better. Like I couldn't even finish the other apples after I tasted the better ones, even though like a week before I'd been eating them happily. But now I'm like, this is so gross. Get this out of my mouth. That's like a real um, risk with trying new, new foods. I feel like, especially yeah, like um, different varieties of like fruits and vegetables. It's like once you taste a good one, um, yeah. like once you taste like a good tomato, it's like oh shit, I can never yeah. eat like a like a garden salad again. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We've had. I was sort uh, of validated by your apple taste test because so I don't see like kanzi. I don't think I've ever seen. Um, jazz, I sometimes see, but I don't think they're in my typical grocery stores. Um, but I usually get Fuji and that was like, that was like mediocre on your list. Yeah. I would definitely change it to lower now after I did another round and the Fuji, there's a bigger gap between, but of the, oh, other, of the non, it <sighs> might've been a particularly not great Fuji apple though. Maybe I need to do a second apple cause I tasted twice, but from the same individual apple. So. Mm-hmm. Not, not I you know I never paid a, a lot of attention to taste differences among I mean there's the, like the obvious large taste differences but mostly I would pay attention to texture for like yes. baking and stuff like that but then uh, one of the grad students in my lab uh, her her dad is a agricultural researcher and actually like develops and names new varietals of apples or I'm not sure if varietal I might be like throwing my wine terminology in here but uh so we had a we had an apple tasting in lab and it you know it was it was awesome having someone who like knows all about apples and she's like telling us like try this one you're gonna taste this and whatever it was very similar to me to wine yeah. tasting where like I'm, I'm a complete like noob novice with wine you know I'll be like, oh, this, this stuff tastes like good wine and then you know but if if someone who's really knowledgeable points it out it's like you can start to develop that appreciation. I don't know. Hopefully, it like, you're not going to... It makes me wonder gonna... if I've been missing out on, like, amazing cucumbers right. all the time. <laughs> I have. <laughs> really? well, I seriously. Remember... So, like, I've, yeah. I just started... Um, so, this is the first year 
I've had like a garden that has vegetables in it in my life. Um, and I have cherry tomatoes and arugula and lettuce, which are like not doing well at all, um, and cucumbers. And so I didn't think that I like had any interest in gardening. And there's still like things that I don't really like about it. Um, but I was like, blown away by this fact that most people know about the world which is that you can put a seed in the ground and then like end up getting something edible from it um but i was like really really like into this process and the cucumbers were the thing that sort of like worked out the best um and cucumber plants are amazing like it's like <laughs> like they they have these little tendrils and they like grab onto things and climb you can almost like see it happening in real time. They change so quickly. But yeah, the cucumbers taste, I mean, it's hard to say because obviously like I'm now super biased in favor of my cucumbers, but I think they taste way better than like the average cucumber. That's interesting. Yeah, um, I remember having like the spinach once, uh, shortly after we moved to Eugene, we went to the farmer's market and we got some like local spinach. And it was like, you know, it was, it was, it was like, turning around and like looking out of Plato's cave all of a sudden, like I had just been eating like the shadow of spinach all my life. And, and now I was like looking at the real deal. And, and, you know, a lot of, a lot of the stuff you get in grocery stores, it's like, it's not bread for uh, taste. It's bread for like surviving long transport and all these mm -hmm. other features. And, and, you know, and oftentimes the taste is bred out of it as a, as a byproduct because you can't have everything. And so, yeah, like the, the local stuff when it's not these big commercial varieties can be amazing. Mm -hmm. So then that raises the question of, do you introduce kids to this better version of stuff or do you let them get all the pleasure they can possibly get out of the crappy stuff for as long as possible? Because once they discover the other stuff, then they can never go back and you've deprived them of a source of pleasure that they had before this is what you do you start them with the shitty stuff and gradually over the course of their lifespan yeah. introduce better and better things so it's their like entire when, life is an upward trajectory yeah when i became an academic and i started going to conferences and like real hotels i was like what <laughs> like not everything is a motel six <laughs> and i was like my parents have been lying to me my whole life and mm -hmm. now i could never go back and i was like i kind of wish i didn't know this <laughs> Yeah, I, I think when it comes to fruits and vegetables, you just whatever whatever it takes to get them to eat any at all. Like, yeah. <laughs> you know, I don't. I'm not too I like the about, idea of like, like an eight year old who is like, I will only eat Kanzi apples. I do not <laughs> eat Granny Smiths or any of that Fuji mm -hmm. bullshit. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm I'm sure there are kids like that out there, but then yeah, there's the the kids that are like, I will not eat anything that grew in the ground. I will only eat, right. you know things coated in MSG dust from the Frito-Lay Corporation. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I am Speaking of which, MSG is delicious, by the way. Oh my God, uh, just so MSG. people, you know, it's, it's funny, it got this like bad rap, but it's like everything in the junk food aisle at the store is basically it's got MSG. And they're all these like, I, re I read this really interesting account where basically like the whole sort of MSG syndrome was kind of like, there's yeah. like very few people that are actually allergic to MSG and, and, but it sort of became this thing. And so now all these companies have come up with things that are chemically identical, but they have different names. So they're allowed to put something yeah. like autolyzed yeast or whatever the, the terms are on their, on their labels. But yeah, basically like Doritos are just like, just 
MSG bombs and, mm -hmm. uh, you know. It's My next amazing. taste test is I bought one of each of the different kinds of seaweed snacks you can get at the grocery store here and there's a mm -hmm. big Asian section. I have a suggestion for your awesome. taste tests. Um, yeah. So if you're like doing multiple rounds where you're going to taste the same things, I suggest um, describing the flavors because it can end up being funny when you like um, – <laughs> you like totally switch your description of the flavors from one room. I did, I did, a, um, I think it was a bourbon taste test with Yoel actually one time. Um, and yeah, there's like, we, we like recorded our descriptions of the flavors and it would be like one round we would say that the like expensive one was like peppery and we were proud of ourselves. And then the next round we would say that the, cheap stuff that comes in a plastic bottle is peppery. It's like pretty humbling. Um, and also has the added side benefit of, um, of justifying you buying really cheap bourbon because you can't tell the difference, or at least it did for me. Right. Yeah. yeah. Are Kanzi we... apples oh. the expensive apples? I don't know, actually. Um, I thought, so I bought these apples at like a fruit stand that had more than a typical grocery store. So then I thought, oh, great, great. Now I like Kanzi. I'm never going to be able to find them. But last night they were there at the regular grocery store. So they can't be that expensive or fancy. Are mm. yeah. apples, I feel like uh, I should know this, like where are apples from? I feel like I, at one point in my life, I feel like I learned that apples were like native to the United States and spread throughout the rest of the world. But then I feel like at other points in time, I've heard that I've heard things that contradict that. So I have no idea. Do you know, like, I'm like way behind you, Sanjay. I don't have conflicting information. I just have no information. <laughs> Maybe it was just like Johnny Appleseed. The story just, you know, was yeah. the usual like American, you know, I know basketball comes from the U S that's well, that's, uh... in canada they told me that basketball comes from canada so really? i don't know who do you trust yeah yeah that's uh you know probably the death of expertise I, yeah well there there are like I, I know uh you know like where pizza came from is like this hotly disputed thing and and because the italians say they invented it but then like along the the coast of France, like around Nice, they say, no, actually we came up with it for, and so anyway, yeah, there's- I heard that one of the reasons Australia is known for really good coffee is because when the major wave of immigration from Italy happened was after they had espresso. And so there's like more espresso-based drinks here, whereas in other parts of the world where there's a lot of Italian immigrants, that wave happened earlier. And so the coffee is not espresso-based as much or something like that. I don't know. No, that's interesting. I don't know if that's true. Yeah. So that's why, like, the flat white originated in Australia. I they, guess so. You know, so they're, like, innovators in caffeine. Yeah. Well, that's yet another reason for me to come visit you, Samin, yeah, someday when, when the world is safe. Kanzi mm -hmm. apples and the espresso-based coffee. Nice. Well, should we do our uh, letter? Yeah, let's do our letter. Cool. Hi goats. I'm a graduate student who just recently reviewed my f or received my first invitation to review a paper. Without going into any details about the manuscript or my review of it, I will say that the authors were offered to revise and resubmit. I think the authors did satisfactorily address some concerns I raised about their initial submission. However, I noticed this time through that some of the results don't seem to align perfectly with one of the figures. I did not point this out in my first review, and indeed, perhaps I did not even notice it, which is certainly an error on my part. 
but now that I have noticed it, I feel obligated to point it out. However, I worry either the editor or the authors will think I'm just nitpicking at this point, especially as I think the author successfully responded to all my other points. I guess my question is, is it okay as a reviewer to bring up concerns you missed the first time through? Recognizing that many journals only author, offer authors two submissions, I worry adding additional comments now may seem unfair. Signed, Anonymous. Um, my first reaction when I read this letter was uh, that I do this constantly to my grad students. Um, so I'm not in a position to judge someone who brings up um, new concerns that they missed the first time through. Um, but yeah, I'm curious what you guys, I suspect Samin will have an objection to the, the, the fact that it was even sent out for review a second time. <laughs> <laughs> I definitely don't think that should be the de facto thing. I think if it's in the editor's wheelhouse and, they, and the first round was thorough and clear, then I don't think it needs to go back out usually. Mm -hmm. But I think, I mean, there are a few things here that I think might be that might not describe most journals. So like the idea that journals, that authors are only offered two submissions. I don't think that's true or I haven't heard of journals where they have any kind of rule like that. I think it's very typical that there's just one round of revisions, but that doesn't preclude further rounds. So that, that I wouldn't worry too much about that. I think the question of, well, so this intersects to me with another really, really big problem with peer review, which is that often reviewers don't focus enough on objective or objective-ish quality issues and focus more on matters of taste. But I think if you're limiting yourself to relatively clear cut, like this doesn't line up, um, then I see nothing wrong with bringing up new concerns in the second round. And in fact, I think it might be wrong not to, if you notice something serious, um, it sucks for the authors. They will definitely not be happy. And in this case, it might be just as simple as like fixing something in the figure, but it's still annoying mm -hmm. to have to go through like, I've been on that side as an author having to resubmit just because one of our references was wrong or something like that. And then you're like, are you serious? I have to spend, you know, the hour and a half of like formatting and filling out all the submission questions and re-uploading stuff and all that. So it's annoying, but that's not a reason not to do it. I think it's interesting because I've talked to other editors who are much more like, I'm not going to raise a new thing in the second round of review because it's not fair to the authors. And so I think you want to be a little bit sensitive to that, but it really depends how much it's a subjective matter of taste versus how much it's like, no, there's an error in the paper and it needs to be fixed. Yeah. I mean, I'd like to say, I guess I haven't been in this exact position, but I'd like to say that I would be annoyed, but ultimately grateful if somebody pointed out a mistake, like I'd rather have a mistake fixed before a paper is published than not fixed. Um, it sounds like this person is talking about a mistake. Um, and yeah, it's sort of like unclear how big of a deal the mistake is. But I, I, definitely, I definitely think one could argue that not pointing out something that could be an error, especially if it changes the interpretation of the results, um, would be um, problematic. Yeah, it feels like the, I mean, what's, to me, this is pretty unambiguous. Like, the numbers in the text don't match the figure. Yes, point that out. You missed it yeah. the first time. Say, I'm sorry, I missed this the first time, but I saw this. Like, what what's interesting is that is, and I, I this is not on the letter writer because I think this is a more general thing is invoking the idea of fairness. And because I, you know, you're as a reviewer. Okay, I'm going to state the strong version of it, and I'm going to kind of defend it and back off a little bit. But as a as a reviewer. 
your obligation is not to the authors, it's to the science. And setting aside like etiquette and decency, those kinds of things are your obligation, like being, you know, uh, um, you know, being a reasonable person about things and whatever else. But it's like the we have publications have become so much currency that we've lost. Sometimes we lose sight of the primary purpose not being professional achievement and advancement, but like, you know, publishing ideas and, and knowledge and whatever else. And, and, you know, it's like, you know, it, it reminds me of when students come with a great appeal and the great appeal is I need this, like I need, you know, can you change my C minus to a B or my C plus to a B minus? I need it to get into medical school. And it's not like I earned it. It's like, I need this for some reason. And, you know, and my response is always, I mean, in in my head, my you know my response is like, well, no, because someday you might be my doctor, and I don't want to get treated by someone who couldn't you know pass my intro psych class or whatever. But you know, but more seriously, it's like that's not a reason. That that's a, um, or at least that's not the primary reason. And, you know, it's like if you can put that in context of like, well, there are also other these other things and whatever. But it's like, please like include something that's on the merits, you know, um, yeah. as part of this argument. And so. I, you know, and I do get, uh, so where I will kind of back off, but not really, is like there are some things that are more a matter of taste, where it's like there's room for different perspectives in the field. Even there, I would say your obligation is not really to the authors, it's to the science, and it's to the fact that the science can have multiple perspectives in it. Um, so it's not like not being a jerk about insisting that it go that it has your interpretation is not about fairness to the authors so much as like some humility about the fact that your interpretation should not dominate the science. Um, so anyway, yeah. So I mean, there are definitely cases where I would not bring something up the second time around if if it was like my point of view and if I could recognize that it's my point of view. But mm -hmm. in this case, it's just like no, that's it's you know, and it, if it. If this is something minor, then great. If this is like turn, turns into the like you know the thread that you pull that unravels the whole sweater, well, so be it. Like if the if it's a unambiguous error, then it's an unambiguous error, and that's not really your call whether it unravels anyway. Yeah. That's the editor's call. I think the fact that the appeal to fairness is so strong, like such a strong intuition, reflects how messed up the peer review system is because <laughs> right. i think it reflects both the fact that we tend to use peer review to make to argue about relatively subjective things which is a problem but it also reflects so let's say let's say there's a fatal flaw that this problem of misalignment between the figure and the results actually when you pull at it it unravels the whole thing and the authors didn't realize that and then the reviewer points it out in second round the authors have to reanalyze their data turns out the you know the, like there was a code, an error in the code of how the data were collected and the data mm -hmm. are useless. So it's not even like possible to redeem it and publish it as a null result or whatever. Let's take the worst case scenario. There's this feeling I think we would all have somewhere inside of us, hopefully not too strongly, but like of like, oh, the authors almost got away with it, right? Like they almost mm -hmm. got the publication um, and no one would have known and whatever. And I think that shows like how messed up it is that we have this like once you cross the line of it's accepted at a journal, then almost nothing can offset the benefits of being able to put that line on your CV. Mm -hmm. um, 
it's a very rare even a retraction usually doesn't completely negate all the benefits you've accrued like to your citations or whatever else mm -hmm. um so i think that yeah, and, shows the mentality we're in is yeah. like crossing that finish line and then it's all good but not yeah, yeah not earning it or. i feel like i, I don't want to put this on the letter writer because in the system that we're in knowing that these things have such big mm -hmm. professional consequences it's actually a pretty humane impulse to be thinking about fairness because it it does have these effects the, the problem is that it shouldn't or that you know things should maybe it should have of course some repercussions for the authors obviously but like it the stakes shouldn't be you know especially like i mean i'm, I'm sort of imagining if i was in this situation let's say i knew that the author the lead author was an ecr is going to be on the job market next year or whatever I'd, I'd be having all these kinds of thoughts because like that's the fucked up system we're in and and it is like a very decent thing to be thinking about that impact but like at the end of the day even with the system we're in you know you do have to be thinking you know placing the science first um even if you really feel for these authors that oh this was an honest innocent mistake and they put all this work and now something's you know uh gonna go down you know mm -hmm. not well for them professionally or whatever Mm -hmm. I do think that like Samina's right that there's something about the like getting so close to like we don't have that same reaction to or maybe maybe we do to a lesser extent to somebody who like within the traditional publishing system runs a super well-designed study and gets a result that isn't like a highly publishable finding so let's say a null result or something like that and it's the same like the same kinds of like issues of fairness arise right it's like you you tried really hard and you did your best and you did good work and you like accounted for the things you could account for and now you're not going to get rewarded for it um but i think we like have that reaction more strongly at the when it's like very close to the point that it would be published but i mean that's it's just like as both of you have mentioned it's sort of like a fundamental um i guess Maybe like misunderstanding is not the right word, but um, it's treating the publication system as something very different than like a system that's intended to put um, knowledge into the world. Yeah, um, that you know that thing you're talking about, Alexa, with uh, I and mean, that is it's interesting because that is the the old fashioned way, but it's still I think very prevalent, which is. Yeah when you do the really well-designed study on a really well-conceived question and the results aren't exciting, you know, a very common response is, oh, damn it, the data weren't cooperating or, mm -hmm. you know, oh, or, you know, whatever didn't work out instead of, oh, damn it, the public, the publishing system isn't going to recognize this as worth, which is really the, mm -hmm. the like, but it's just, you know, part of it is we're still in that old mindset a lot of the time and part of it it's harder to blame systems than it is to blame things that you interacted with directly like collecting your data and whatever mm -hmm. um, but i think we still have that impulse a lot of times it's not like god damn it the the world won't recognize this you know p equals 0.07 ambiguous uh i can't tell a good story but it was worth doing anyway result yeah. um you know exactly yeah another thing that occurs to me though is like in this scenario where yeah i don't want to like attribute it to the specific people in this scenario but like when you imagine authors yeah being annoyed when the third round of review someone brings up something new even if it's like a relatively clear mistake and so on 
But at the same time, authors often, after something gets published and then people criticize it, they'll often appeal to like, well, it went through peer review, so I don't know what you're talking about because mm-hmm. it clearly it doesn't have any problems because it made it through peer review. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, if we're going to treat peer review, like getting accepted Just in a peer like, journal as this like super, super high bar, then I'm sorry, but you're going to have to answer every valid criticism that people can think of at whatever point in the peer review process because we can't bring it up after. So you're blocking you know, the same people who are blocking post-publication critique from really having an impact um, right. can't also complain if the peer review process becomes more and more onerous because that's where we are still allowed to yeah. raise these concerns. I do think like in terms of, so yeah, I agree that the answer to this specific question is, is that it's totally fine to, um, to mention this in the second round of reviews. Um, I think one thing that is useful to keep in mind as a reviewer and something that I feel like I've done a bad job at in the past is identifying in the first round things that are unfixable or unfixable with new da- without new data or some like very, very, like some new study or replication. Um, I think I've been in situations where I've been like, I'm not totally convinced by this thing please do a better job of like convincing me, but I should have known that they couldn't do a better job. Right. And like, I think when you, when you ask people to do a better job, they think like, okay, I just need to like throw in some other citations or like be more persuasive or whatever. Um, So I think it's helpful as a reviewer to try to be able and an editor to try to be able to distinguish the things that actually like can be addressed by the authors from the things that can't and be clear that like, there are some things that you see as sort of like unfixable flaws, whether they're fatal or not. Yeah. I, you know, the, the, it's surprising how rarely editors do that because I always appreciate it when they do, they kind of stand out when they say like, okay, I read the reviews, here's what I think and here's what you have to do. Like that's, that should be like a completely normal thing yet oftentimes it's not. And, and I think, yeah, as a reviewer, like being very concrete, um, and, and yeah, saying like, you know, unless this thing changes, I will not be persuaded or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's totally legit. And then, you know, the editor can, can say, oh, you know, reviewer three said this, but I actually disagree and it'll be fine or whatever. Like that's, that's the, hopefully that's the editor's, you know, prerogative. But I think as a reviewer identifying that and then also identifying the cases where there is like, oh, if you do this, you know, and I think the longer I've had experience and seen how things go poorly, like I try to anticipate, you know, as a reviewer, I'll say like, you know, do this new, you know, you need to do this analysis to check this thing. And I'll say, but I think it should be published regardless of how that comes out. Cause I, mm-hmm. I've learned that if I don't say that, you know, the, the editors are prone to make a decision. I'll just say like, this, this was worth doing. You need to do this to check this assumption or whatever, blah, blah, blah. But like, yeah, I think, uh, so I think in both directions, we need to say like, what are our, you know, what are our sort of bright line in the sand things? And and also like what, say in advance, what you'll be satisfied with um, and the range of things that you'll be satisfied with. I think that's a really kind and helpful thing to do to the authors. And it just, it makes it a better review objectively because you're giving more information. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that this issue from the point of view of the editor, the issue that the letter writer brings up is much more complicated because I do try to write decision letters that are kind of like a contract. Like if you do these things to my, you know, either at all or to my satisfaction or whatever, mm-hmm. then I'll publish it. So then when I 
find something new that I could have caught the first time the second time, then I'm violating that contract. If I say, well, actually, I'm not sure if I'm going to accept it now. Right. It's easier if it's a thing where it's like, yeah, yeah, I'm still accepting it, but just I noticed this other thing, you need yeah. to fix that too. But if it's like, oh, actually, now I notice this thing and I don't know if you can address it. And then yeah. you raise it the first time. That sucks. But from a reviewer's point of view, you don't have that obligation. In fact, I think you have the opposite obligation, but it is tough from the editor's point of view. And I never know as editor if I should, when the revision comes in, because my memory is terrible and I've forgotten everything from the first round, is it better to read the revision fresh and see what new things I come up with <laughs> or mm-hmm. read my decision letter and the reviews and the response first and then I'll have kind of blinders on and won't necessarily notice if there were other errors that I hadn't noticed. The first yeah, time. that's a good point. Well, have we, do you guys feel like we've, yeah. Uh, someday it'll all be moot. Why? Well, I I hope we move away from like a black and white decision mm-hmm. um, and more towards like c- continual open review that something's published first and then evaluation can be a continuum and it can change, be dynamic and change over time mm-hmm. yeah. instead of a yes, no, that's fixed and then done. Yeah. So optimistic, I mean. Yeah. <laughs> someday not in my lifetime yeah <laughs> long after we're gone uh well uh yeah cool well thank you anonymous for your letter i hope uh, i hope we've helped um and listeners if you would like to email us if you have a letter you'd like us to read and respond to or just any conversation feedback anything you want to reach us you can reach us letters at the blackcoatpodcast.com we're on Twitter at Black Coat Pod. We're on Facebook, facebook.com slash Black Coat Pod. We're on uh, uh, Instagram, instagram.com slash Black Coat Pod. Uh, hopefully we're going to start posting again there soon. Uh, it's been a little while. I think the last picture on there is like me with a goat mug from like half a year ago or something. So, uh, you know, we'll figure out something to post on our Instagram. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, you can find us on uh uh itunes and spotify and stitcher and uh other places and if you find out about a place for podcasts that we're not on let us know and we'll try to get on it so for our main topic today we uh we want to discuss an article that uh, came out in 2018 um it's by jeremy freeze and david peterson and the title of it is The Emergence of Statistical Objectivity, Changing Ideas of Epistemic Vice and Virtue in Science, and is published in the journal Sociological Theory. Fries and uh, Peterson are sociologists. And you know there are a number of interesting things about this article. It's kind of, uh, um, it's about the sort of replication crisis in psychology and it makes this argument i'll i'll kind of try to try to summarize the argument it's sort of trying to put what's happening now in psychology and in, into sort of a historical context and talking about um how over the course of the history of science the idea of objectivity has kind of shifted and it's making this argument they call it statistical objectivity the idea that uh what people are doing, people that specifically they refer to as epistemic activists, the people who are sort of pushing for reform in psychology, that they're pushing for this idea that Fries and Peterson labels statistical objectivity, where we're locating objectivity not in a single study and the expertise in the analysis of a single study, 
but in collections of studies and literatures, sort of, I think, trying to make sense of meta-science as kind of a new, not only like a subfield, but also as a new perspective that people are taking. People are taking a meta-scientific perspective, even on individual studies, they're thinking about them in the context. This is sort of the argument. I, I'm probably missing important things about it. But uh, yeah, so we, you know, it's interesting, I think, I mean, it was interesting to me in part because I have lived this history in, you know, in the last decade. I've, I've been one of these people that they're calling epistemic activists. Um, so it's sort of, I, this is kind of the first time I feel like I've had, it's not an ethnography, it's, it's more like an essay or a review, but it's, it's the first time I can think of, or at least it's the strongest instance where a community like that, that's not like a, you know, racial or ethnic community, but something a little bit more smaller and more specific that I've been a part of has been an object of academic study in this way. And so it was sort of an interesting experience reading it and kind of seeing these labels at some points, feeling like they're kind of putting words in our mouths. And, and you know, it's not always clear whether, so you have to kind of read between the lines and see like, when are they saying we're saying this? And when are they saying this is our interpretation of what they're saying and that kind of thing. But uh, um, I don't know, what, I get, maybe that's an interesting place to start. Just like your, what do you guys, your personal experience of being talked about, like as you're reading this article, what did that feel like? Yeah, it's interesting. So I picked it also for our labs journal club, the MetaMelb lab at Melbourne now. And it was interesting hearing people talk about it with different, background assumptions. And so I've met Jeremy Freeze a few times. Um, and so I filled in some between the line stuff differently than other people might have. And I filled it in in a pretty charitable way, I think. And so for me, one of the most strongest like feelings I had being talked about or reading about people writing about my group or whatever was like, oh, they can say things that I can't say. <laughs> um, and like, especially there was one part um, on page 297 where they quote from Diedrich Stapel's memoir. And they say, like they said, you know, well, first they start by saying like Merton said, you know, that classic decisions of science talk about self-correcting enterprise. However, Stapel's memoir of his fraud presents a different picture. And then they have an excerpt about how nobody ever checked my work. Everyone trusted me, blah, blah, blah. Um, and it's interesting because normally we put Stoppel in his own corner, mm -hmm. but here he's talking about what things were like before anyone knew he was committing fraud. And I think it's a really important point that, yeah, this is accurate. I think many of us would probably agree. Like no one's really going through and checking our work. No one asks to see our data, reproduces our analyses and so on. Um, but like to contrast that with the claim that science is self-correcting is a really bold move that I agree with, but I wouldn't necessarily have had the guts to do to be like, we say science is self-correcting, but look, Stoppel said no one checked anything he did. Um, so I appreciated, I, yeah, I, I, now I'm in a position where sometimes people from other fields will come to me and be like, can somebody please point out how messed up my field is? Cause I can't say it. And I'm like, yeah, sure. Happy to tweet about <laughs> like this crazy <laughs> thing that's happening in this other field. And I feel very grateful when other people do that for our field and so I felt a little bit of that with this paper but I'm I can I can I think I can anticipate a bit of what you're talking about with like not always agreeing with some of the ways they're characterizing our positions and mm -hmm. forward to getting into yeah that. I I had like there were times when I wasn't totally sure if the authors were saying we're like we're attempting to document a shift within the field or say something more 
prescriptive, like this is like how things should be. Um, but it sounded like one of the claims that they were making is that um, in psychology, we're increasingly treating psychologists as like economic actors rather than these like people who can be considered something like an objective expert. Um, so we're sort of like turning away from the idea that um, we can, as an individual scientist, be this sort of like arbiter of objectivity. Um, I'm thinking more about things like systemically and treating people as like, just like susceptible to incentives the way that any, treating psychologists as susceptible to incentives the way that anyone is susceptible to economic incentives. And I wasn't totally sure whether that was, um, whether their take on that was that like, this is psychologists like becoming more realistic about human nature, or if it was like, this is psychologists getting lazy about taking personal res like responsibility for being objective. So I, or being cynical. There, there's an interesting, I think, connection between, I mean, what you were saying about the, how they invoked Stoffel, right? Because, so, so they, they said what it, virtually everyone who talks about this stuff said, which is that fraud, you know, they say the usual thing that fraud is different than the hacking and all these other things that, you know, and I think those two things early on in, you know, sort of 2011-ish, you know, when the Stoppel case was first coming out, a lot of people said, we're kind of trying to talk about that carefully and say, yes, these are different things, very different phenomena, but they're highlighting similar issues. And I think the, you know, Samin, the passage you just quoted is a, you know, an example where the fraud highlights that if there aren't checks and balances catching fraud, then they also aren't catching more, you know, sort of ambiguous or innocent things or whatever. But I feel like what happened is that people still do say that sometimes within psychology, but it's kind of people get their defenses up very quickly when you invoke fraud. And so people just, mo it's, I feel like it's shifted more and more people are trying to find other ways to make that point. They're not, they're trying to avoid invoking fraud because everyone gets defensive in the field about it. But if you're an outsider, it's, you can make that point and, and it's not your colleagues who are gonna get mad at you for invoking Stoppel, right? And, and there's something, I think there's something very similar. And so they invoke this idea of the sort of viewing scientists as economic actors, as the, that's their sort of characterization of one thing about this movement that they're saying, you know, all the talk about like incentives um, you know, within meta-science as, as this is a problem with incentives and we need to restructure the system and everything has sort of, they're saying it, it characterizes scientists as an economic actor. And what, what was interesting about that, which I don't think they really picked up on this, is they, they sort of attributed this to how psychologists or how whatever these, whoever we are, epistemic activists actually view things. And I think that's true to some extent, but I also think in a kind of similar way, there's also, it's, very, it's a sort of strategic rhetorical decision, which is that, but it, and it's also a strategic interventionist decision, which is, is rhetorical because that shifts the blame away from scientists. And, and if you're scientists talking to other scientists, and you, you want to change things, you don't want people to get defensive. And so you say, it's not you, it's the system you work in. It's, it's those mm -hmm. damn journals and reviewer two's fault. And all the, yes. you know, you sort of right. put the blame outside of them that, that gets people's defenses down. Yeah. But then also from an intervention perspective, like, so, you know, my, 
my actual scientific perspective on this is that it's an interaction, right? That it's human beings have multiple motivations, some better, some worse. We, there are individual differences in how strong the different kinds are. So everybody has large or small, some amount of wanting, you know, to discover interesting things about the world. And everyone has large or small, some amount of wanting to gain status and advance their careers. Um, and, and that interacts with the opportunities and affordances and constraints of the world to produce the individual behavior. And so if you want to produce a collective shift, you can either change the distribution of people you're selecting and training into science, which is really, really hard, or you can change the situations that those dispositions are activated or not activated by to produce an average effect. And that feels more tractable. And so there's also this practical decision of like, I, I don't think we're gonna be able to like select or create more moral people in science. And, but what we can do is change the situations that activate people's different impulses to do different mm -hmm. things. Um, so, so I don't know how many people view it that way, but like this is how I've always kind of thought about it is like it's, I'm a personality psychologist, I'm an interactionist, that's kind of how I view it. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so it's both this sort of strategic rhetorical thing to get people to listen and it's also kind of like, it's, it's, not the, it's not my explanation of why an individual scientist does or doesn't p-hack, it's my interventionist view of like, what's the thing we should ta be talking about changing that'll actually produce a difference. That mm -hmm. is what leads me to focus on incentives when I talk about this stuff. So I, it was sort of interesting that they're kind of, the, but they're, they're really framing it as like, this is how scientists view the scientist. This is like their, their model, uh, their complete model of what a scientist is. And I, I was sort of like, I can't speak for other people. So maybe that is true for other people. But for me, no, like I don't, <laughs> I haven't forgotten that scientists have like motives and, and, you know, character and virtue and all these other things. Mm -hmm. um, it's just not, it's, yeah, I have these other reasons for why I don't talk about it as much. Right. Yeah. I definitely like see that rhetorical appeal and rely on it sometimes too, Sanjay, but it's interesting. I think I've been thinking about this a lot recently. So I, I see a parallel, I think, between some, the way that some people talk about systemic racism. Um, so, the in the like in that the book White Fragility that that I think a lot of people have read recently by Robin D'Angelo, she talks about how basically like everybody is racist, and so like an important step is like acknowledging your racism, or all white people are racist. Maybe it would be more accurate. Um, and I feel like there's like a similar, like a parallel in saying like everyone is a p-hacker and then like shifting and being like, okay, so now we have to think about the system that we're in. Um, and I see the like utility of that in both of those, um, in both of those approaches, right? It's like, it's not about you, but you're part of a system and the system is bad. And so we need to start thinking about how to change the system so that your behavior like, um, so that it incentivizes the behavior that you want to engage in. But I have a, like this, a little bit of like a hesitation about that strategy also, because it takes all of the like teeth out of these like accusations that used to be really, we used to be really afraid of like, like being called a racist or being called a P hacker or, and, and I think there's like, you see a similar um, phenomenon happening when people make the distinction between fraud and p-hacking, right? It's like, oh, well, we're like making this clear distinction between fraud and p-hacking because everybody's a p-hacker. It's not like a big deal to be a p-hacker, but fraud is like bad people. 
Um, so I guess like maybe I'm wondering, uh, do we, do we take away, um, people's like feelings of responsibility too much when we start to only focus? I, I'm not sure that I have like an answer to this, but I, I worry that like when we only focus on the system, then do we not, do we now feel like we don't have to take responsibility for our own actions in the same way? Yeah, this is a bit of a tangent, but someone just reminded me of it recently. And it's consistent with my memory, but I'd want to go back and watch the videos to make sure. But like a really striking example of this was at the SBSP symposium that I spoke on last year. Joe Simmons gave a talk first and he talked about p-hacking and he gave really vivid examples from his own work. That was, mm -hmm. I thought, like really moving and humbling right. to see that. And I think his point was kind of what you're saying, like we're all p-hackers. Yeah but that means we're all p-hackers, you know? Right. Like, we're all p-hackers doesn't mean it's fine. It means each of us individually also is doing this right. bad thing. And then I think the next speaker after him was Susan Fisk, but when Susan Fisk got up to speak, I think it was right after Joe's talk and she said something like, oh, well, I don't engage in bad practices <laughs> or something like that, that either she was misunderstanding what Joe was saying or it was like, a really vivid example of like how hard it is to be like no but you do and like not because you susan fist do but like because you're a social psychologist practicing in the 90s and 2000s and right um I, yeah it is a really interesting and i don't know how to walk that line and like i often mm -hmm. have this feeling after giving talks where like people come to me and be like oh it was so great that you didn't blah 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 and I'm like but I did blah 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 like I did say <laughs> people do bad things or whatever and I'm like I guess I'm glad that it went down so smooth that you feel like I didn't say that but I don't I don't know if that's a good thing and like striking that balance is is really hard right like if you if you don't raise anyone's hackles then maybe you didn't yeah. really say what you meant <laughs> yeah. yeah well and I think there's there's you know there's a couple of different undercurrents or, or different and you know this was also something i think the the article was kind of painting a single monolithic view and and this is often the case that when you're part of a community or a movement or whatever it looks you see more of the distinctions but you know i, I think there are there are some people who just want to keep the focus on systemic and and say well we change the system and people's behavior and they want to sort of leave like evaluation and morality and values and all that out of it. And then there, there's a, another group that are sort of like, and maybe this is a little bit more in line with Joe that, that want to say like, okay, yeah, like personal culpability was different because you didn't know any better, um, but now you do. And so now you are on the hook a little bit more. And then, but then there's this third group, which I, and I've mentioned this before and I, I, I feel kind of like, I feel like, there's this third group that's left out, which is the people that were doing at least some and perhaps many things right all along, you know, mm -hmm. that, that yes, recognize these practices as problematic before 2010, um, that we're doing different things. We should and, at and, least pay their therapy bills, I think. Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> and, and yes, and some, some of them um, have, I think, just swallowed their whatever feelings and and moved forward and some of them have gotten quite visibly antagonistic and bitter um and in in ways that i don't approve of but but i i have this you know part of me feels 
quite sympathetic for the fact that they're like, no, I was fucking doing this all along and I was getting screwed because, and I was screaming into the void. And now all of a sudden mm -hmm. everyone's saying, we recognize it and that's great, but you're saying it wasn't anybody's fault. And I'm like, fuck you, I was doing it right. Yeah. You know, right. and I was, yeah. I was losing opportunities and losing grants and losing awards or whatever. And, and you know, and I think you can like, of course you can get on a high horse about that stuff, but I think there's also some validity to it. And I feel like all of those strands have been part of and so I feel like maybe what they're describing this sort of economic view is the dominant rhetoric that's going on right now. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I think one, like I said, one thing is there's a difference between the rhetoric and what people actually think. And two is I think there's heterogeneity in what people actually think. Yeah. There's a fourth group and then, sorry, this is a tangent. It's not related to the paper, but I think it's an interesting phenomenon. It's the people who said, yeah, yeah, I've been saying this all along. I'm the expert in this area and it's actually not nearly as big of a problem as you guys think and these are often quantitative mm. psychologists i think mm -hmm. but there's this group that's like no 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 this isn't a new thing we've known about this all along we've been talking about it. you guys haven't been listening but it's actually really tractable and like this is you know like that come in and then i think some of them might have actually thought it was a pretty big problem but because they feel left out or that they weren't listened to or heard in this movement they're now well this is attributing a lot of intentions but their position seems to have shifted to like this reform movement is actually wrong because we knew about it all along or something like that. Like, I don't <laughs> quite get it. Yeah. Um, but I think that is a real group that exists and also probably has some justification for feeling really annoyed that yeah. we didn't listen to what they were saying before. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so what do you guys think of, Oh, I was going to shift gears a little bit. So was I, maybe we're going to say the same thing. Yeah. Uh, I wanted to ask um, Samir about, it. okay, so there's a quote in the paper that refers to meta-analysis as the ultimate arbiter of scientific objectivity. Um, and it sounded, so my, my first reaction to that was like, whoa, 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 I don't know about that. But it sounds like Samir, your reading of their discussion of meta-analysis was different than mine. So I wanted to know what you thought about their discussion of meta-analysis. Yeah, I mean, they use different phrases in different parts of the paper, and I think they're interchangeable. So like they talk about meta-evaluation, like in figure one, statistical objectivity is associated with meta-evaluation. And when they talk about like that, we, this, these epistemic activists argue that you get objectivity through um, canceling out bias at the level of the literature rather than individual studies, I thought they meant, that's what they meant by meta-analysis is like, evaluating a set of studies or a literature and trying to figure out how to identify the bias and counteract it at that meta level rather than the traditional meta-analysis of like averaging effect sizes or whatever. I see. Yeah, maybe maybe we should sort of set up the arguments a little bit for people listening who haven't read the paper because that and and feel free to like jump in or correct me but I you know they're kind of I mean I, I said this a little bit earlier when we were starting but you know it's kind of an interesting historical description of what they think is happening, right? Where they're saying, they sort of go back, you know, hundreds of years or whatever. And, and but I'll just, you know, they're saying sort of immediately prior, at least, the, that there was this emphasis on, and that, you know, they're talking about the, the idea, how scientists think about objectivity, which that triggered me a little bit, because I don't, I have a very different view of, and I, I don't like the word objectivity, and I have a view of things that doesn't buy into objectivity. But anyway, I'll, mm -hmm. let me give their argument. They're saying like, science, this idea of scientific objectivity was sort of resided very much in the individual expert and the individual study. And the way you evaluate a study is you look at the individual study. And this is something that will feel very 
to me, their description of it felt very familiar to, to how I was trained to do science and how to evaluate research, which is you look at the individual study, you look at the methods, you look at the analysis, you look at all that stuff on a single study basis. And, and so they're, making, they're, they're saying there's this shift to what they call statistical objectivity, which is an interesting term they have to unpack. Because I think when I first read that, I thought they were talking about maybe something a little different than what they were talking about. But that's mm -hmm. the thing that Samin was saying, that they're, they're saying, you know, objectivity. So they talk about the Open Science Collaboration, the 100 Study Replication Project. They talk about, you know, some of the other like large scale replications. And they're saying, like, there's this shift to saying that, you know, the way we understand that, that scientists are now studying populations of studies, they're studying literatures, and that the way we understand what's going on and the way we sort of get at truth is through viewing individual studies as data points rather than as a thing to be taken unto itself. And so that's where they introduce this idea of meta-analysis as the sort of arbiter of truth. Um, and at one point they even call it meta-analytic fundamentalism, which they don't really explain why they're calling it fundamentalism. And so it felt, to me, it felt like a little bit of a jab, but, uh, um, I, you know, and there were some parts of that that I, uh, you know, sort of agreed with. So, so this idea of, that, you know, they bring up things like P-curve and sort of quote unquote forensic methods of, of deconstructing literatures and figuring out what's going on. But they also kind of argue for the old fashioned idea of like average, they say that people are arguing for this old fashioned idea of, uh, old fashioned idea of meta-analysis is like averaging studies together to get an answer. And I'm like, that is not how people are talking about meta-analysis right now. Like, the, you know, uh, so it's not just the arbiter of like, can we understand p-hacking, whatever. It's also like, can we get the answer to the scientific question? And that's what I think people in the sort of open science community, replication crisis, whatever, are like incredibly skeptical of meta-analysis as a way to get the answer to the scientific question. I think people are viewing it as a meta-scientific tool, yes, but uh, I think there's actually been a growing skepticism that you can learn anything and, and you know, by debiasing studies or averaging them together or whatever. And I think you're starting to hear more and more people saying like, what we really need is like the one pre-registered multi-lab, whatever, multi-method, whatever you have to do, but like the, the one really, the one study that's done with the right controls for all these biases, for publication bias and p-hacking mm -hmm. and all these other things. Um, so I thought that was kind of an interesting, I don't know, so so yeah. I thought they were sort I, of blending these two ideas of what meta-analysis can be, the, the sort of diagnostic component and the answering the scientific question component, where I feel like that's vastly diverged in, in how people are viewing things. Yeah, I mean, I took their point to be less tied to current methods for evaluating literatures and more conceptual. And I actually, I think I agree with you that I didn't resonate with what the reform movement position mainstream like position seems to be now, but I actually think they might there, maybe it should be. So I feel like I agree that I like I often have this instinct of like, yeah, just do one really, really good study with all the best practices and that'll be better than anything you can extract from the literature. But I think actually the next level, what is, what's the meme? Like galaxy brain <laughs> is um, that that needs to happen from multiple angles yeah. independently, right? Yeah. And each one, each data point that's going to go into the meta evaluation needs to have all yeah. these best practices and 
be have as little bias as possible, but actually that's still going to come just from one instantiation and one framework and mindset and so on. And I can't remember if they cite Helen Longino, but what they were saying to me reminded me of what I've heard of because I haven't yet read <laughs> Helen Longino. Um, that yeah, that biases can't really be corrected in the individual, but if you have a diverse ecosystem, right. then hopefully some of them will cancel each other out. And so, and she uses objectivity a lot in her work. So my guess is by objectivity, they don't mean that the term that we've come to associate as like this, like almost like putting scientists on a pedestal, but I think they might mean something like canceling out biases. Mm -hmm. And that seems quite likely to me that the only way to achieve the next level of objectivity is to have multiple independent but each individually high quality um, data points that are somehow synthesized, but we're not there yet because now like it's a, still a, a dream to get one high quality yeah. result about a substantive question. Yeah. So, so I, I want to, and I don't know. So let me set aside the question of whether they're doing a good or bad job of representing epistemic mm -hmm. activists as a group or whatever. Cause mm -hmm. I, I, you know, maybe they are, maybe they aren't, but this I want to get a little bit into why the term objectivity rubbed me the the wrong way, or at least doesn't doesn't line up with how I think about this, right? So so you know what we're trying to do when we do a study is is we're trying to understand the we've got data and we're trying to understand the process that generated the data and we're trying to understand the phenomenon that we're studying, right? And the the problem that people have been highlighting for the last decade is that. The, the scientists, the researcher, their decisions, the things that they've done, like the data wasn't just generated by the phenomenon you say you're studying, it was also, the data was generated by the interaction of the phenomenon with the scientist, mm -hmm. right? So all these choices of what methods to use, what measures to use, how to frame the question, what question even ask in the first place, what terms, what concepts, all these things involve the researcher. And to me, what, a lot of this past decade has been highlighting is the fact that, and this is where they use this kind of Goffman concept of like front stage, backstage, right? The idea that a lot of things that we would want to know were backstage that we're trying to make front stage, trying to through transparency, through openness. Um, that's why things don't replicate because we don't know what went on backstage behind the scenes. Um, and, and so we can't, redo them or whatever, or, or, you know, they, people, the, so the data was produced by somebody selecting for a good p-value rather than by the phenomenon or both or whatever. So, uh, um, so what this is about to me is not, it's not about trying to like remove the perspective of the scientist to get closer to objective truth. It's trying to make it more on the surface of what the scientist is bringing to it. So I want to, I want to know all the decisions, all the stuff. And so it's not just about the statistical practices and, and P hacking and all that kind of stuff. It's like, I want to see the materials. I want to see the, you know, the, the I want to see when the decisions were made in relation to the data, because I want to understand, you know, was, was this decision made after having explored the data or not all these other things like, and not just the analysis decision, but like measurement decisions and the, all these other things. And it's not, it's not because I think like we, if we pre-register, we remove the scientist's perspective. It's because if we pre-register, we know more about the scientist's perspective. And so it's not making it more objective. It's, it's 
making the perspective and the subjectivity more visible. Right. And yeah. so, so like, I want to know what decisions you made and I want to see them. And then I can decide as I'm interpreting it or as I'm following up on it, if I want to, my own perspective, if I want to follow you, not follow you, dispute you, build on you, whatever. Um, and so I, I wouldn't take it to that sort of meta, like galaxy brain level of saying like, we can now, if we pre-register and registered report and everything, now we can average those together and that's mm -hmm. objective. I'd say no, because that that's still going to, be the average perspective of the scientists going into that. And we know that there are average perspectives that are way off base. There are, you know, if the average scientist is sexist, then the average result is yeah, going to be just averaging average this. But yeah, 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 yeah. But I, but so we can still have that, you know, and they, they sort of talk about this idea that like it's replacing an informed reading of each study with this sort of statistical concept of objectivity. And again, that's mm. maybe, maybe some people are, Maybe some people do view it that way, but I don't. Like I, so I don't think that I'm go ever going to feel like the sort of old school idea of meta-analysis is you average the effect sizes and you get closer to the truth. Like, I don't know if anyone, how much people ever I believed think, that, but I don't, Yeah, I, but like, it, I'm not gonna, like that's not where I see this going. But I think, yeah, I think that there's something like deeper to what you're saying, Sanjay, which is, I mean, not to put words in your mouth, but it sounds like you're saying that like objectivity is not your goal. Um, but maybe something more like, uh, like acknowledging subjectivity or documenting it more thoroughly. Maybe, maybe we want to get away from objectivity and subjectivity completely. Um, but I'm sort of sympathetic to that idea that it's sort of like, um, like futile to be chasing objectivity or it's an, it's an illusion and, and that we might be better served by trying to, um, to be accurate in some other way or transparent in some other way. Yeah, there was a really interesting Twitter thread that's kind of stuck with me. It was uh, Sarita Schoenbeck said, and then Neil Lewis quote tweeted and kind of elaborated. They were talking about the idea of positionality statements, which are a big thing in qualitative research where the, the because in qualitative research, it's part of the epistemology that the researcher's perspective is part of the process, that they're bringing that in, that that's, that's part of how they're doing things. And, and so I think Sarita first said this and then Neil quote tweeted and elaborated on it that like quant papers should have positionality statements too. And I thought that was a really interesting, I don't know if that's like, I haven't thought about it enough to know like, if we actually did that, would that be good? Like, what would that actually look like in practice? But it was a regardless, uh, maybe, and the answer might well be yes, right? But regardless, just asking the question just highlights the fact that yeah, there is positionality in quantitative analysis. Mm -hmm. It's it's all these decisions we're making are coming from a perspective. What what do you think are the important questions to ask? What do you think are the right ways to measure things? What do you think are the important constructs that define it? All these other things, right? Yeah. Um, analyses have imply analyses have assumptions and they imply certain things that have to be true in order for the analysis to have the interpretation you want it to, and blah blah blah. And, and yeah, so I think to me, that's, that's what like, that's why I want transparency is I want to, I want to see more of this stuff. And, and I would love it if there was more like narration of, you know, like, yeah. why did you put these covariates in not from a like statistical, oh, it reduces noise, but like, what do you think that does to the meaning of the coefficient? Like yeah. all these other things, you know?
I think a positionality statement would be a self-report of a construct that we want to assess, but we want to go beyond just a self-report, right? So the transparency also allows observers to form their own judgment yeah. of where the biases might have come in. And so I think mm -hmm. one of the points of transparency is, yeah, then we could get observer reports of positionality and biases and so on. And yeah, I want to say like, I know I, I put forward a very naive idea, this galaxy brain idea of like statistically aggregating somehow, but not just in a straight average, um, these high quality data points. But I, having now recently read a lot of registered reports and deaths for a project I'm doing, I definitely don't think we can just be like, oh, it followed these practices. Cool. Let's put it in the average and mm -hmm. waited this much. Um, so yeah, I think there's no way around having to make, having to engage in critical thinking. And then, yeah, that I, I guess I think then objectivity is out the window because there's not only one numerical outcome of critical thinking. It's not like you read this paper and you're like, oh, it's a nine out of 10. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Well, this was, I think we're, we're coming up, or I think we've just gone over an hour, so maybe we should wrap up. Do, do either of you have any, any final thoughts, any, any burning things that you didn't get to, to throw in? I'm out. I'll, I'll hold back. Okay. <laughs> All right, cool. Well, I think, I think we're good. Uh, so yeah, thank you listeners for listening. And, and thanks to, to Jeremy Fries and David Peterson for the paper. It was, uh, it was definitely fun to read. It was super interesting and, and it gave us, I think, grounds for a fun discussion. So thanks to those authors as well. And thanks listeners for listening to The Black Goat and we'll catch you next time. Mm -hmm.